This is a Crestview Bible Podcast. For more information, visit crestviewhutch.org. One of my favorite um, pastimes to do is to go on YouTube and watch um, these coaches or players go on rants uh, to the media. So if you remember the, some of the famous ones, uh, Herm Edwards, he was the coach of the Jets. Uh, he leaned forward and he said, you play to win the game. Hello, you play to win the game. And he's like so upset at these reporters. And, and you got uh, Dennis Green saying, the Bears who we thought they were. And we let him off the hook. You're welcome, Brian. Um, <laughs> you let him off the hook. And then you got Jim Mora saying, playoffs? Playoffs? You're talking about playoffs? I just hope we can win a game, right? And as in response to, do you think you can win, you think you can go to the playoffs? And he was just like so flabbergasted uh, by the fact that they would suggest playoffs. Uh, you got Allen Iverson saying uh, 22 times about, we're talking about practice. Not a game, we're talking about practice. And he just like goes on for two to three minutes and complaining to the media that they're talking about his practice regimen. Uh, you have Mike Gundy, my, that's actually my personal favorite, the coach at Oklahoma State uh, said, don't come after him, come after me, I'm a man, I'm 40. And um, so it's, and there's also, there's a pastor who rants on his congregation that Phil and I like to, to go off. And, and why, why do we, why do I enjoy watching those? And it's, it's because we get to see that these coaches are real. Uh, they, they're, they're special because they finally let their passions show. Um, they're usually, they come in there, they're so mellow after they've just gotten blown out or a horrible game, and they come in there and they say, yeah, our players just didn't execute, we didn't follow the game plan, and, you know, it's just so, like, do you, are you alive? Like, are you a robot? And, and so finally we get to see, like, the others, like, what is actually going on inside these coaches' minds and the emotion, the, the raw emotion that they show. Um, and so I, I understand these guys are, are human, just like I am. That's why I enjoy them. Well, now we, we come to Job, and we wonder, what's his reaction going to be? What's going to be Job's reaction to all that has happened to him? So what has happened? Well, remember, he has a large family, wealth, celebrations, a good walk with the Lord, great devotions. He was like the epitome we would say, of hashtag blessed, right? Every Instagrammable picture, it was Job. He was on top of the world. And then the worst happens to him. In chapters 1 and 2, he suffers physical, mental, emotional, social, spiritual loss. Everything is taken away. He loses his financial stability. He loses his family. Not just one, but all ten of his kids all at once. His health is ravished, not, not just like a, a simple diagnosis, but boils from the head to the foot. To the, uh, the, there's so much pain that he's actually taken broken pottery and he's like scraping the boils off of his body. Like that's just, oh, it's, I'm not, I can't deal with that kind of stuff, but I just can't think about it. But after all of that, it says that Job did not sin with his lips. I think that's important for us to remember through all of this. It's, he did not sin. He was blameless in everything that he said throughout this whole thing. And, and then at the end of the book, we think, okay, well, maybe that was just the very initial reaction. Well, at the end of the book, in chapter 42, God affirms Job in all that he says, that he's right in all that he says. 
Job doesn't backslide. He blesses the Lord through all this. So what does a guy who is blameless, righteous in all his ways, correct in all that he says, how does he react to a situation like this? What do you think his reaction might be? Your, what's your initial thought to say, man, what, how would he react? Maybe how would you react? What would be the emotions that are stemming in you? Well, let's, let's go. Let's read Job 3. Let's read what his reaction is. Job 3, if you're there, verse 1, follow with me. It says, after this, so after all of what's happened in, in chapter 1 and 2, Job finally opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor let, shine, nor let light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those, let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did, I die, why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. With kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver, or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease altogether. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to, those who, given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul? who long for death, but it comes not, who dig for it more than tre hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Wow. What a tough chapter to swallow, especially in our cultural Christianity, our, our American Christianity that, that can be shallow, that can be superficial. We're not used to this sort of language that we see in this chapter. We're, we're trained by our culture to not show any grief, to not show any wavering, don't show any doubt. We gotta grin, we gotta bear it. Don't show the emotion. This is the way, this is the Kansas way, as I like to call it. Don't show any emotion, just, hey, look on the bright side, right? There's gotta be happier times ahead. 
Take it as it comes. It's our, it's our cross to bear. It's our burden to bear. It's going to be okay. It's like um, there was one time I was just talking with a child, and, and, I, and I started to fake cry. I started to pretend crying. And, and she says, you're not, you're not crying. And I said, how do you know that I'm not crying? She responds, because you have kids. I'm like, just because I have kids? I, so there's, there's this perception that, well, parents don't cry. Only kids cry. I think that that's a, an accurate um, illustration of how we perceive our culture. Parents, adults, they're not allowed to cry. They're not allowed to show emotion. They're supposed to be even keeled. Kids, yeah, they can do that, but definitely not adults. We act as if we question what God is doing or are honest with him about our frustrations, then our faith is somehow in limbo. Or we think that God would be offended if we were to ask him any questions. Suffering and pain, really, it isn't as simple as chapter 1, 21, or 2, verse 10 says. Lord, the, God has given and he has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So, Job suffered, Job trusted, end of the story. It's, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So God gives us this chapter, this cry, this plea, this lament for us to hear. And what it does is it gives us a window that, that we're not alone in these questions. We're not alone in our sufferings. That we, we find that we have a listener. We have a listener in God. Job is not alone. The Bible is full of suffering. It's full of brokenness, grief, struggles. It's full of lament. And if you realize that the Bible, there's more songs of lament than there are of praise. Sing your lament to the Lord. Come on, everybody. Come on, everybody. We, we like to focus on the praise, but there's actually so much more lamenting in the Bible. There's 65 psalms that are lamenting psalms. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lament Lamentations. You know, when I was little, when I was younger, maybe you think that there, it was actually it was written by a guy named Laman. When I was a kid, I used to think there was, there was a guy named Laman who wrote it. Like, you know, there's Galatians and there's Colossians. Well, there was Lamentations, right? Lamentations. Well, it's actually a book. There's five chapters full of a nation, a people that's lamenting to God. So listen to what God is telling us this morning. Listen to Job's pain because he lets it out. He expresses his deep pain. And that's why I've entitled this sermon, A Pain Expressed. It's kind of a play on words. C.S. Lewis had an old book called A Grief Observed. So I'm calling this A Pain Expressed. It's jarring at points. It might shock some of you. Just don't forget that Job was blameless through all of this. If this is a book that's about wisdom, it's, a, it's in the, the so-called wisdom literature, if that's, if that's the case, then we see that there is wisdom in expressing pain. There's wisdom in expressing emotion, that this isn't a foolish man talking. This is a man who is in deep sorrow and pain and has the freedom of expression to cry out to God. So let this cry of pain be affirming to you, that you're free to lament, Maybe in your grief and your pain, you've, you've avoided lament. You might feel that somehow that this is doubt, that this is, um, this is wrong to do. So you're scared. 
that if you cry out to God that you're somehow blaspheming God's work, you're blaspheming his plan. You might think that this is disregarding the command to to count it all joy in your trials, or that, um, that we're complaining and we're not supposed to do any groaning or complaining. Maybe you have this, um, this Jimmy Dugan uh, view of God. Jimmy Dugan, he was the manager in a league of their own. And remember, there's the, the, the girl that's crying, the player that's crying, and he says, you're crying? Is she crying? Are you crying? There's no crying. There's no crying in the Christian life. Maybe you think that that's how God is treating us. There's no crying. That's different than what we see here in Job 3. As we walk through this text, I want you to look at how you, another aspect is how you can love others who are going through their pain. To give them a voice. Let them air it out. Be comfortable with the questions and the frustrations, the wrestling, the tears that others may have. Be comfortable with the questions and don't be shocked or alarmed at people's reaction to their pain. And then we're going to land. We're going to land the plane and see who's on the other side. We have a counselor. We have a comforter at the end. Well, let's look at these three expressions of pain. If you have your notes, I have three expressions of pain that we experience in our grief. And the first one is to be honest. Verses 1 to 10. And then these, these first 10 verses that we see, there's, there's 16 curses that Job brings. He doesn't, he doesn't curse God like Satan or his wife expected him to do or his wife wanted him to do, curse God and die. But they're a cursing of a, of a, of a certain moment in time. It's the day of his birth. And even, he goes back nine months previous, to curse the day of his conception. He's, he's dreaming up that he's a, he wants some curse to land there. He wants like someone from uh, Gryffindor or Hufflepuff to, to get some, open up their book and magically a sorcerer come and just wipe that date off the calendar. I don't want there, I don't want that to be even a, a, a day of existence. Even though this, most, this should be the most joyful occasion, he's so filled with grief and sorrow that he wished that day would have never even happened. That day, there would have been people that were celebrating the day of his birth. They're popping him champagne, getting out the cigars, and it's like he's saying, I wish those bottles were just smashed, that the cigars would be broken in half, and no one is celebrating that day. He wished that it would be wiped off the calendar. You remember the, 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 the moment in Joshua where the sun stood still? It's almost like Job is asking for the opposite of that. I want that day to be just complete darkness. I don't want that day to exist. If, uh, if Phil can quote all his uh, favorite Christmas movies, then I got mine. It's a Wonderful Life. So you know that story, George Bailey, um, dream of traveling the world that always just kept getting left unfulfilled. Always the doormat, always having to serve uh, others to his detriment, only to seemingly lose $8,000, modern day, $125,000. And he can't afford that. He's living at the, the poverty line with his uh, family of six. There's no way that he could pay back the $8,000. And he goes up to Potter, says, hey, can I get some help? Harry F. Potter, the, the, the villain of the story. 
And he asked him, well, don't you have any assets? No, I don't have any assets. I got this life insurance policy. To which Potter responds, you're worth more dead than alive. So he contemplates that. He goes to the river and he contemplates, well, what if I was worth more dead than alive? That's when his guardian angel right, jumps in to save George Bailey. I'm not, I'm not advocating this theology. I'm just using a sermon illustration here. Right? Um, and he, he, he jumps in, and, and then he, they're drying off, and Clarence tries to convince him of all that George has accomplished, and George responds, yeah, if it hadn't been for me, my wife, my children, my friends would be better off. Now, why don't you go off and haunt someone else? And then Clarence... He says, so you think that killing yourself would make everyone more happy? George Bailey responds, oh, I guess you're right. I suppose it had been better if I'd never been born at all. What was Clarence's reaction to that? He says, you mustn't say things like that. I think that's an important line from that movie. Clarence is talking like one of Job's friends at that moment. He's trying to comfort him in the place of God while the guy is in pain. George is being honest. I wish I had never been born. And it takes, and Job has the same reaction to his suffering. And it takes 36 chapters for God to respond to Job. God doesn't say, you mustn't say things like that. He lets Job have the pain, have the sorrow. But God says, I got you. I got you in the midst of this. Are you able to be honest with God? Are you, are you able to do that? Or do you put a, a nice face? Do you stuff it down? Your frustration, your pain, do you just bring it down? Or are you honest in saying, I wish that I'd never been born? Do you want to curse and scream out how bad it sucks? Then do it. God isn't scared. In fact, he welcomes it. Again, a whole book of the Bible is on lamenting and suffering. And when others around you are walking through their suffering, do they have permission to be honest? Or are you shocked by what they say? And do you want to quickly redirect them? Oh, you mustn't say things like that. Don't try and compare your sufferings with theirs. Don't, don't point them to the good things that they have going on. Like, for an example, in a, if, if someone is going through a miscarriage, don't say things like, well, at least you have your other kids. Try to look at the bright side. Enter into their pain. If they're cursing certain aspects of the miscarriage, enter into that and say, yeah, it sucks. It's horrible. I want to curse that day, too. And so in expressing pain, just be honest with it. Be honest with your pain with the Lord. He wants that. He wants to hear from you on that. And the second thing that Job does and that we can do, our expression of pain, is to ask God. To ask those questions. Ask the tough questions. Because after all this cursing, in verses 11 to 19, after all this cursing, Job begins down a line of questioning. And he asks seven why questions in this section. And not in a in a toddler sort of way of asking, like, you know, Cindy Lou Who asking the Grinch, why, Santa Claus, why? Why are you taking our Christmas tree? Why? Right, he doesn't say that. Or he's not, like, me asking God, God, why do you have to make this weather so cold? I hate it. I don't want this cold weather. But these are serious questions. They're not trivial matter. 
this expression of pain. Why did I have to live through this? Why did I have to experience this pain? Job gives the reason that he asks these questions. Because if he hadn't been born, if he didn't have to see light, then he would be at rest. He would be at peace. Or so he thinks. In his pain, he thinks that death is better than life. He knows the right answer, okay? He knows the right answer. In chapter 17, Job says that death is not better. He says that's where worms are. That's where decay is. He knows the right answer. But in his desperation, this is his place of rest. So you might start to think, Job, you you mustn't say things like that. And you begin to correct his theology in the moment. Job, you forget how great you had it for years. You're willing to wipe out all those great years just because of some light and momentary affliction? For those walking through deep suffering, the answer is usually yes, it's worth it. In those moments of pain, yes, it's worth it. I'd rather be at rest. I'd rather just have it end. So what are your questions? Are you asking God, where are you? Why is this happening? What are you doing? Why me? Why now? Job isn't alone, again, in, in the Bible. In this. Psalm 10 asks, Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble, O God? Why are you so far off? Psalm 74 says, Why do you cast us off forever? Habakkuk 1 says, How long must I call for help and you don't answer? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? John the Baptist, when he's in jail, has his disciples asking Jesus, Are you really the Messiah? Paul in 2 Corinthians says that we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, in other words, confused at what's going on, asking questions, but not driven to despair. So ask God your tough questions. Ask him. Having a deep longing for God and question him, wrestle with him in prayer, it's a wondering that if God is truly running this world or not. And if he is, is he for me or is he against me? Because sometimes it feels like you're against me. Have these honest conversations with him. He wants them. In faith, you can cry out to God and question him, to ask him. He isn't scared of your questions. It's not a sign of doubt. It's a sign of faith that you're running to him. Just as a, as a child runs to their dad and asks why they're doing something that's confusing to them, it might not change the situation. But as a father, as a dad, I'm, I'm glad and I'm happy that they're coming to me. And they're not spewing, trying to find their answers on their own or from someone else. They're coming to me. I'm happy for that. I'm not saying, how dare you question me? As a good father, I'm going to come near them. I'm going to draw near to them saying, yes, I know it's confusing, but I got you. We're going to walk through this. Remember that our natural reaction to hearing someone else do that is is to correct them or to, in a misplaced, well-intentioned, to comfort them like Job's friends. Because do you see who talks next in chapter 4? His friends chime in. And God said that his friends are the wrong ones, not Job. So ask with the one in pain. Pray with them these questions. Don't act in the place of God of trying to give them the answer. Now, if they're asking you, if they're saying, hey, is God good? 
You can answer them. You can say, yes. Yes, he's good. I, I know that he's good. And I, but I don't know why this is happening. So let's ask him together. They might ask you, has he abandoned me? And you can answer them, saying, no, he hasn't, but I'm sure it feels like he's far away. I'm sure it feels that way. So let's pray that he would draw near to you. You might ask, why am I going through all this? Why, am, why did I have to be born into this situation? You could say, I don't know. But let's pray. Let's ask. Let's seek him. The, the third expression of pain that we see from Job is that he pours out his emotions. This is the last section, 20 to 26. Job pours out his emotions. This last and most deepest groaning is right here. It says that he is bitter in soul. Bitter in soul. He's in deep distress. He's in deep anguish. He is suffering and searching for death like he says, like a, a person in the 1849 gold rush. I'm just running. I, I, I just want one nugget of this. One nugget of gold here. Desperate dreaming of it. One commentator says that Job feels like a man on life support, on a life support machine, and he is just waiting for someone to switch it off. Just take him out of his misery. So it sounds like he's contemplating suicide, but I don't think that's what he's advocating. See, his wife suggests it, right? Remember chapter 2? Curse God and die. Why don't you just end it? Just end it, Job. But Job doesn't take these drastic measures. Even though his pain is excruciating, he entrusts himself to the Lord. He's, Job is longing for the pain to end, to be at peace. Just remember, just remember how raw this is. Losing all of his children in one swoop. Losing all his provisions. Think, think all his savings has been drained out. And he's scraping his body with pottery. Of course he cries out, saying that, I, I wish I was six feet under, than still alive here. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that he was so utterly burdened that he despaired of life itself. And he says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So listen to his last plea. He says that this, this hedge of protection, Phil talked about that last week. Remember we talked about this, praying for a hedge of protection, that Satan says, well, you have this hedge of protection around him. Well, now... Job sees it as reverse. Now he's like, I've got this hedge of cruelty around me. But God, you just want to do cruelty. I, I, I want to get out of this cruelty, but I can't get out. You've hedged me in on this. He can't eat. He can't drink because of his deep pain. No appetite at all. Everything that he tried to avoid, he was, that he was, he was scared of, that of happening to him, he says, what I feared has come upon me. How many of you as parents are scared of what happens to your children? Much less all of them at the same time. How many of you are scared about getting some debilitating disease? How scared of you are, are, are you of losing your financial security and being numbered among the poor? How scared are you of losing everything and everyone leaving you? That's where Job is. 
everything that I was scared of has happened to me. And then he finally cries out in despair that there is nothing good in his life. No peace, no nothing. Only disaster. Only turmoil. Life sucks. So what's the conclusion? What's our hope at the end of all of this? Is there anyone who cares? Is there anyone who is listening? Isaiah chapter 42, verse 3 says, A bruised reed he will not break. And in Matthew chapter 12, it says that Jesus fulfilled that verse. He is the fulfillment of that. He is the servant who will not break a bruised reed. We're all farmers here, right? We're, we're, we, we think we are. We're, we're Kansans, right? So we know how wheat works. If you were to, as it's growing, break that grain or break that stalk of wheat, that fruit would not happen. So he says, I'm not going to, Jesus says, I'm not going to break that stalk. It might be bruised, it might be battered, but it's not going to be broken. This is Jesus, a servant who won't break the reed, but he heals it. He loves the fragile. He loves the beaten. He loves the battered. They may not show it on the outside, but Jesus sees and he heals the wounds. And more than this, it's Jesus. He is the only one who has entered into that pain. He's not aloof to it. And he expresses. We see him in the Gospels expressing his pain. He was honest in his suffering. It says that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. When his friend died, Lazarus, we have a simple and profound statement, a kid's favorite memory verse. What is it? Jesus wept. It's profound. He shows his emotions. He's apparently not from Kansas. He, he asks his father. He questioned on the cross at the height of his pain. He says, why? Why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He pours out his emotions in the garden on the night before his death on the cross. He was in deep prayer. So much pain, so much anguish, so much crying, so much pouring of his emotions that he was sweating drops of blood. He begged that his father would think of some different way than this one. This is Jesus. This is our Savior. This is our King. He's not aware. He's not above pain. He expresses it. He is there for you in the midst of it. You see that the cross was not a purposeless suffering. It wasn't meaningless pain. His suffering and death, Jesus taking on the wrath of God for our sin and our shame, made it possible for us to have forgiveness in him. Without his suffering, we have no hope in trials. Without his pain, we suffer alone in our sorrows. Because of his death, we have the hope of the resurrection. That our death, our suffering is not the end. Jesus rose from the dead and he sits at the right hand of God. And what is he doing at the right hand of God? He is making intercession for you right now. 
when you're pleading to Christ, he is there to the Father saying, I'm advocating for you. I am here. I am alive. I have conquered the grave. It will be over. The Father has vindicated him. Jesus not only gets you, but he is with you because he is alive. This morning, in your pain, in your suffering, in your heartaches, will you go to Jesus? Will you go to him in repentance and faith, asking him the tough questions? And when you turn to Jesus, he is there with open arms, wanting to listen to everything you have to say. So trust him. Believe him. Pour your life into him. As Jesus says, come and follow me in the midst of this. I just want to spend some moments now. I don't want us to leave here with a heaviness and not deal with it. I want us to spend a few moments. I know, I know there are people in this room that are going through deep suffering, deep pain, deep sorrow, frustrations. I want you to spend the next few moments before the Lord, being honest, asking him your tough questions. I want you to spend a few moments pouring out your emotions. And I know, again, we are, we're in Kansas, we don't show emotion, but I promise you, in this room, there is an abundance of counselors. It's going to be okay. No one is looking upon you with shame. No one is looking upon you in judgment or condemnation. If you need to do some heart work with the Lord and just pour out your emotions, do that this morning. He's there, listening to you. Be honest, like Job. So spend a few moments now before him.